I feel like you this morning, Jigger. <laughs> well, you know, there can only be one Jigger Shaw. I'm surrounded by pillows in my hotel suite. <laughs> well, that and the and and I hope the internet is powerful enough that you can upload your your audio file in less than two hours. Uh, it should be okay, but there's this whole subculture on the internet of reporters who are posting pictures of their pillow forts in hotel rooms. Uh, and it's, it's, at, it's at its peak right now because there's a lot of reporters on the road uh, covering the caucuses in the New Hampshire primary. So I've seen lots of photos going around of people with their pillow forts. I don't feel so alone. It don't is fall kind asleep. of shocking how many pillows they give you. <laughs> you got to find some way to put them to good use. <laughs> well, if I were here for a meeting at this hotel to convince them to put solar on the roof, I would definitely be turning to Energetic Insurance. Energetic Insurance is a supporter of this podcast, and they're leveling the playing field so that project developers can offer the same electricity savings to small and medium businesses that were once reserved for the largest companies in the U.S. They've got this thing called the Enerate Credit Cover Policy and it enables savvy developers and investors to quickly finance commercial solar projects. So if you want to check it out and uh, give some security to your portfolio refinancings, go to energeticinsurance.com GTM and submit your projects today. The Energy Gang is also brought to you by Core Power. Core Power is a leading manufacturer of high-density, high-voltage energy storage solutions for utility, industrial, microgrids, and mission-critical markets. This hotel might need a Core Power battery storage system, too. So it's got all sorts of fancy things like integrated safety handles, concealed front panel covers, and module front display that the installation geeks will drool over. And uh, it's got market-leading energy density as well. Core Power is taking orders now for deliveries beginning this spring. Find out more at corepower.com, K-O-R-E, power.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome. This week, a swift and sweeping turnaround for a utility that has long been at odds with its clean energy competitors. Arizona Public Service is the latest power behemoth to unveil a zero-carbon target. Political pressure, consumer demand, economics, and a new CEO all played a role. We're going to look at how they influenced the switch. Then congressional Republicans say they're serious about climate. They've got a new messaging bill. We'll talk about what's in it, or more importantly, what's not in it, and ask why they're tackling the issue now. Plus, plug-in hybrids versus electric cars. Honda CEO says he thinks plug-in hybrids are going to dominate for a long time. Uh, There are new rankings out that put uh, plug-in hybrids at the top of the clean category for cars. What is the electric mobility transition going to look like? Will we jump straight to EVs, or will hybrids be a viable interim step for many automakers? Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah are with me as always. Uh, they are on their usual perches in Washington, D.C. and uh, Bethesda, Maryland. Catherine is there in D.C. She is the chair of 38 North Solutions. How are you? Doing great. Uh, Jigger and I found ourselves in the same city this week, San Antonio, Texas. Mm-hmm. What were you doing there? Well, were I was going defending to... Defending the Alamo. <laughs> <laughs> sadly, sadly, we were trying to defend the Alamo. Um, but no, I was at Distributech. I spoke at the Smart Energy Consumers Conference uh, 10 years after it had been started. uh, And I had been on the selection team for the original executive director, president, and she is still there. What about you, Jigger? Were you at Distributech as well? Or were you just touring? We were using Distributech as another gathering of this uh, uh, clean tech leaders roundtable. And so we had uh, 30 top sort of 
executives in the clean energy space trying to figure out how we work more closely together. Jigger Shah is the president of Generate Capital, using his conference resources wisely. Nothing like piggybacking off another conference to get people where you need them to be, right? Exactly. And we were at the Hotel Emma, which I have to say is incredible. Well, Jigger's good at cajoling people, and uh, he has been uh, cajoling Arizona Public Service for some time. And that brings us to the first topic. Uh, another major piece of news on the corporate front. This marks three weeks in a row when an influential company has made show-stopping news with a significant target. Arizona Public Service's new CEO, Jeff Goldner, says the company will look to source all of its power from zero-carbon resources by 2050. It's a stunning reversal for a company that has been accused of buying out commissioners and spending tens of millions of dollars over the years to smear solar and more recently kill a ballot initiative with a similar renewables target. In just the last few years, Arizona Public Service spent $400 million in upgrades on the giant Four Corners coal generating station. It was planning to build five more gigawatts of natural gas-fired electricity, but all of a sudden, it says it wants to stop using fossil fuels over the coming decades, a move that will have real consequences for planning today, right now. So, Jigger, what happened here? What's this target all about? Let's let's um, let's talk about the target first, and then we'll talk about the politics and the forces behind it. Well, I mean, just so we put a lot of this stuff in a little bit of context. Um, you know, Arizona Public Service was first asked to sign up to a commitment for clean energy in 1998, right? So they have actually been uh, forced by state lawmakers, by ballot initiatives, by activists to put more clean energy in the ground since 1998. And they've fought it ever since 1998, right? So the announcement that they made recently was that they were going to decarbonize 65% by 2030, and they were going to hit 100% clean energy by 2050, which is a huge reversal from a utility that spent gargantuan amounts of dark money to oppose a renewable portfolio standard on the ballot initiative just a few weeks, a few years ago. Catherine, unpack these targets a little bit more, uh, the milestones, the resource mix, and how big of a lift this is for APS. Yeah, so just to look at their energy mix, about a quarter of it is coal, and they're aiming to shut that down by 2031. This after years of reinvesting in it. So in 2014, they put $182 million into purchasing this Four Corners plant from Southern California Edison. In 2015, they were slapped with a $160 million fine from EPA for all of its pollution violations. And then, as you had said, they're gonna they're putting $400 million into controls, which then they can pass along to their consumer base. But so they have a quarter of their generation from coal, a quarter from gas, which they are going to use as kind of a transition fuel, but eventually they're going to have to get off of gas too. They have about quarter nukes, and then they have only about 12% renewables, and then the last 16% are with demand-side management programs. So they're looking to ramp up renewables to 45%, and that's going to be where they have to make up the big difference is with renewable energy. The good news is like they have all the resource in the world out there. They just need to let it happen. So what does this mean for planning? Uh, you know, I think inevitably you see on the pressure campaign side, people saying we need these targets to be faster. 2050 is too far out. But, you know, for a utility like APS, these this means making planning decisions today. 
about infrastructure you retire or infrastructure you build that's going to be around for decades. So even though we're talking about a mid-century target, we're talking about stuff that needs to be decided today or in the coming years. Uh, Jigger, what does this mean for the way the utility starts to think about the resource mix? Well, it's a good question. And of course, it means you have to make new decisions now, right? As we know, what's been happening in the background is the retirement of the Navajo coal station. And when you talk about a retirement of that size, you're talking about a lot of freed up transmission and distribution capacity. Remember, Arizona, for a long time, has been a utility that has been exporting power, right? And so it can actually play a very useful and helpful role to Nevada, to to California in their decarbonization efforts. And in so doing, actually reduce rates further for their customers because they're able to pursue higher volume, right? But all of that requires planning around how to use that excess transmission capacity and how to, you know, maintain reliability in their uh, in their territory, right? And I think for a long time, they had been fighting it almost religiously, such that the planning never occurred. Um, and, you know, now they've got to make up for lost time. They had also had a a real stranglehold on their commission. It's one of the only 14 states that elect their public service commissions that govern the utilities and regulate them. There are five members of the commission. They had put tons of money into those elections, both overtly and then through dark money unconcealed. And so that is going to change. And the chair of the commission, Bob Burns, has really been holding their feet to the fire. He has always been very forward thinking on technology. And I think what this means is that not only are there not, and he has said, are you going to give money to commission races anymore? And they have promised not to give any, donate any more money, whether directly or indirectly to commission races. So that is a huge step forward if that happens. But the other thing that that does is that it hopefully will let others into the room so that the planning process and the solutions that are arrived at are actually really helpful to everybody in the state, including, including APS. Who is this guy, Jeff Goldner, who is now the CEO? He took over for CEO Don Brandt, who oversaw a lot of the um, campaigns against solar, a lot of the money that was funneled into electing commissioners that were favorable to APS. Jeff Goldner came out and said, no, we like like you just said, Catherine, he, he explicitly said, no, we don't want to funnel money into these campaigns to choose commissioners. Uh, no, we're not going to actively fight the renewable energy industry in the way that we did. And he's got this big target. Um, who is he and, and what's he trying to do here? Well, first and foremost, he's a lawyer, right? He was a partner at the Phoenix office of Snell and Wilmer. He joined Arizona Public Service in 2004 and, you know, and I think that in general, he's been leading, you know, legal rates, regulation, government affairs, and customer service. And I think he's been basically on the front lines doing the dirty work for the Arizona Public Service Management Team and Pinnacle West Management Team. And I think it's important to note just how much trouble Arizona Public Service is in, right? I mean, last year, there was a lot of calling for, you know, Commissioner Andy Tobin to resign over a definite breach of commission ethical standards. You talked about in his farewell address, Chairman Tom Forsey advised commissioners to stop texting, basically back texting with, you know, the regulatory affairs people at Arizona Public Service illegally using phones supplied by APS. They're still being investigated by the FBI 
for wrongdoing in those activities, right? So part of who Jeff is is someone who is desperately trying to figure out how to get out from underneath all these investigations and all these ethical breaches. So he's overcorrecting and basically saying the utility is going to be squeaky clean because we have been definitely dirty in the past. Okay, so where does that fit into the number of pressures that a utility like APS is facing? So you have economic changes, um, you have an executive change, you have these political pressures, clearly their consumers want this stuff and they can see that. Um, How is all this coming together and what force is most powerful in pushing this kind of target? Is it just like PR or are they true believers in this because the economics are just staring them in the face? Well, I think that the biggest force is the people. Remember, Steyer spent almost $100 million between Nevada and Arizona in the last election cycle for these ballot initiatives. And so there's been a lot of advertising to the consumers directly. Consumers know now that Arizona Public Service has deliberately not been investing in renewable energy that XL Energy was investing into, right? That Arizona Public Service has been giving up 30% federal tax credits that they could have been using for economic development in their state because of their war against renewable energy. And so you're at a point now where the consumer is actually enlightened based on like heavy advertising spending in the last election cycle. And even though they won that ballot initiative and they killed it, in the end, even the governor of Arizona is saying, wait a second, like, why are we not doing stuff that's in the best interest economically of our ratepayers? Yeah, absolutely, Jigger. And I think uh, the people in Arizona who have installed solar and they have a ways to go, but there's a lot of experience there. People do, once they get solar, they don't want it to be taken away. So I think rather than seeing this as a political issue from, you know, whether it's blue or red, it's more about these folks have had experience with it. They like it. They want it. They want to keep it and they want to grow it. Let's be fair and talk about some good things that Arizona Public Service has done to get them to a point where they can recognize this reality. I mean, they have been consistently a leader in terms of most solar deployed in a service territory just because the solar resource is good. They've got a lot of utility scale solar that they've procured um, that obviously came from political pressure early on. But nonetheless, there's still a lot of solar. They've experimented with uh, residential Uh, batteries and rooftop solar, uh, figuring out both technically and from a rate-making perspective how they could get more hybrid systems on people's rooftops. So there's stuff going on, certainly. And and I've talked to members of their engineering team over the years, and, you know, they're truly passionate about this stuff. And uh, I think like a lot of utilities, you've got pockets of teams of people who are doing truly great things. So the question is, Uh, what impact has that had on APS? Like, what are some of the good things that they've actually done over the years? Well, I mean, they've they've been investing in innovation for years, right? When you think about the center at the Arizona State University, I mean, they've been pioneering like tracker technology and other things since the 1990s. And so, um, I mean, Arizona Public Service is filled with extraordinary people that work there. And they have been building relationships with the local university town and stack. In fact, you see a lot of solar um, PhDs as well as solar technicians and others coming out of those universities. They separately built, you know, one of the largest solar thermal facilities um, 
in the country, you know, way back when. So, I mean, I think they've been on the leading edge. They are the ones who helped uh, First Solar test all their facilities um, in Arizona with Tucson Electric Power um, way back when as well. So, you know, I think there's been a lot of work on the front lines. I just think that to, to say that this represents leadership is to say that, you know, that the electric utility industry has been, you know, has been leading on a lot of these issues just because they've done hundreds of pilots. Catherine, how big of a deal is this? Yeah, I think it's huge. I think it shows that they're open for business in a much more transparent, stakeholder-friendly way. I hope that's the case. You know, I spend a lot of time trying to get distributed energy resources in the mix, non-wireless alternatives in the mix, state by state. And we hadn't really looked at Arizona. We saw Arizona as a solar state, but... This looks like they're maybe going to be open for other types of business, and I think that's that's good for everybody. So far, in the first three weeks of this year, we have seen Microsoft do this carbon negative announcement. We've seen BlackRock announce this major climate initiative that could have wide-reaching impacts. We see Arizona Public Service developing this target. What is the influence here? I mean, is this peer pressure? So if you think about BlackRock, you know, a lot of other major financial institutions and banks have made this switch. There's this divestment pressure. Clearly, there's a lot of peer pressure going on there. I think Microsoft is facing something similar, although they're they're ahead of the pack and they've been thinking about this for some time. Clearly, a company like APS is responding to the peer pressure from, say, Excel Energy, which after setting its major carbon-free target by the middle of the century, spurred a bunch of other announcements from smaller utilities. And now it's starting to hit bigger utilities like APS. So this peer pressure element, how important is it? Uh, I wouldn't call it peer pressure. Um, I mean, certainly it's it's a lot safer for utility to make this kind of announcement after Idaho Power beat them to the punch, <laughs> for the love of God. But like... Um, I mean, God, like for all the stuff that Arizona Public Service could have been doing for 20 years, right? They waited for I'm Idaho Power. I'm sorry for the three people in Idaho Power way. who are listening to I, this. You know, I, oh my God. Like, it's just like, I mean, and Idaho Power has been trying to kill net metering for years. You know, it's one of those things where I think that this is actually all about their customer base. I really think that they've pissed off their customer base to the point where they're no longer proud of their utility company. And I think that Arizona Public Service finally has realized that this was a losing battle for them and that they really just need to show different stripes. This is completely different from Microsoft, which I think is really showing real leadership like Google and others have. And I think it's even different than BlackRock, where activist pressure really did get BlackRock to do this. But I think from BlackRock's perspective, like, you know... I think that they sit atop this sort of like financing perch. They're not as operational as Arizona Public Service. So like, I really think that they're really in a class all by themselves. This would be like if ExxonMobil said they were going to stop drilling for new oil and gas and only focus on and having their 10,000 engineers actually increase their stock price, which was focused on clean energy. Yeah, the thing is that I've seen utilities making a lot of decisions over the last decade based on fear. They're clenching. They they see that their business model has to change. They don't want to they don't know what to do to change it. They're terrified and so they clench and they try to stop progress. But I think that having Excel, 
AEP, others coming out and starting to kind of de-risk the future and de-risk progress and showing a path forward for a new type of business model for utilities gives utilities a sense of, oh, there is a way to do this in a way that we can still be made whole, that we can still see a path forward for our business um, and not just make decisions based on fear. I'd also like to give a shout out to Julia Hamm over at the Smart Electric Power Association. You know, she has been working with utilities like EPS for decades, and it has been a thankless job for decades. And without people like her being a resource for these utilities to go to, to like share best practices, et cetera, these transitions wouldn't be available when, you know, the thinking within the boardroom has changed. And so like, I think that, you know, APS has been prepared for this change over 15, 20 years, and then finally had the leadership on top who, you know, from a risk perspective, decided they needed to do it. Yeah, I think the Smart Energy Consumer Collaborative has been, you know, in parallel with Julia, Patty Duran has been bringing utilities together to talk about how they start reconnecting with their customers. And I think kind of that dual pronged approach has been really getting us where we are now. Yeah, I mean, I think this really shows that both approaches work in pressure campaigns and advocacy. There, There is has long been this split in the renewable energy industry and more specifically solar around whether you be an ally of the utility or whether you engage in no holds barred fisticuffs. And obviously, like you need the ground game to put pressure on utilities, but you also need to bring them on trade missions, bring them around and see how stuff is done around the world, work with them collaboratively on research papers and pilot programs. And that's the work that those organizations have been doing. And I think that it's a long game and it clearly works and it prepares these companies to make these big switches when they're ready and the economics and market conditions are staring them in the face. Before we move on, a quick note about our supporters. Thanks to Energetic Insurance. Energetic Insurance has this really cool new insurance product that gives developers and investors confidence and certainty of cash flows to unlock institutional capital for commercial solar projects. The Enerate credit cover is super easy to understand, and it is insurance that enables financing for unrated or below investment grade corporate off-takers by covering your payment default risk. If you want a fast and easy way to provide a high credit backstop to your portfolio, go to energeticinsurance.com GTM to submit your projects today. We're also brought to you by Core Power. Core Power serves the growing demand for industrial energy storage applications, and it's taking orders right now for six gigawatt hours of capacity available in 2020. Core Power is planning to build a new battery manufacturing plant right here in America. And once it's operational, the planned 1 million square foot facility will have 10 gigawatt hours of scalable capacity. It's also going to have a cogeneration plant right there to be carbon neutral during regular hours and feed power back to the local grid. The renewable energy industry needs a new battery manufacturing partner to build tomorrow's grid, and that partner, it's Core Power. You can learn more at korepower.com. That's corepower.com. So moving on to the Republican climate messaging and climate bill, I saw this great quote from Jason Grimay of the Bipartisan Policy Center. He called the bill aggressive gardening. Yeah. <laughs> now they just have to water it. <laughs> <laughs> 
so a growing number of Republicans, led by House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, are starting to talk about climate change, or really about trees and aggressive gardening. Uh, they're looking at the polls right now, they're hearing younger voters, and they are realizing, oh my gosh, we need to do something about this, even if that something is just a messaging bill with no teeth. So House Republicans are preparing a GOP climate bill, and it looks like it's going to call for a trillion tree campaign, an emphasis on carbon sequestration. Uh, plus, it's got that old standby of R&D and tax cuts, certainly important. Don't want to downplay the importance of those things, but just a slice of what's needed. So why now? Uh, why are Republicans getting up and trying to position themselves on this? Catherine, what's Kevin McCarthy up to? Yeah, so just to put this in perspective, there have been climate solutions caucuses in both the Senate and House for a number of years, especially in the House, where they would bring in, they, they call them Noah's Ark caucuses, where every time you had a Democrat, you had a Republican too, <laughs> so it was two by two. And you would you would come in and, and have briefings and talk about climate change, but they really did not do anything legislatively. Um, a lot of them lost their seats in the House this last go around, and so they were kind of dwindling numbers. Numbers. The Senate has been kind of reinvigorating a little bit. But to kind of put this in perspective, Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader now in the House, is a Republican from California, and his district has the most renewables of probably any other district in the nation. And he has never, ever stepped up in support of renewable energy. He's just never been there. We've tried over and over again. But Here's what happens. The Republican conference gets together and has meetings regularly. You know, here's what's happening in the floor, just general meetings. Here, here are the um, issues we're teeing up. Here's what we're doing. Here's what the voting looks like. But they've just recently started these policy meetings where they're going to take a topic and talk about it in a little more detail, try to get themselves on the same page on what their positions are going to be and what their platform is going to be as a party. So the first policy conference they ever had was on climate change. That in and of itself is significant. So what they did was they brought the entire Republican Party from the House of Representatives together. Garrett Graves, who is the ranking member on the Select Committee for the Climate Crisis, he's from Louisiana, he gave a presentation, a slideshow that said, okay, here are the facts of climate. Here's how we're thinking about it. Here's how we're positioning. Anybody who wants to speak gets one minute, get up in front of the microphone. And my understanding is from somebody who was in the room, is that about 40 people stood up in front of the microphone and spoke for one minute. Only one of those members of Congress doubted the science. Only a couple said, well, we believe the science, but we're not really sure that it's human caused. Every other person got up and said, I have a solution that I have heard about that we need to discuss and put into the mix. So I think the party is shifting for a number of reasons, but that in and of itself is significant. So the polling, what is the polling saying? I mean, uh, you, you look at some of the top Republican pollsters. I think Frank Luntz is the guy who really comes to mind, who's been saying, I don't know, for five years or more that Republicans love this stuff. Not only do they love clean energy, but like they actually want to do something about climate change. And then Yale, the Yale program on climate communication has been tracking this for 10 years. They have a new poll that came out that showed the number of people who are alarmed about climate change has increased uh, substantially over the last five years. And it na the number of people who are alarmed about it outnumbers the people who are dismissive three to one. So oh, that's a big deal. And um, are, are Republicans looking at those polling numbers and saying, well, we just have to do something. I mean, we, there's no other option for us. 
Yeah, so CRES, which is the Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions, is sort of the Republican think tank or you know, Republican leaning think tank on a lot of these issues. And I know Jigger and I both talked to Charles Hernick, who's their director of policy and advocacy about this. And he pointed to a number of polls. One is that two thirds of millennial Republicans want the government to do something about climate, that a majority like 70% of voters support Republicans offering their own set of policy agenda on the issue. And kind of what this boils down to is that climate change has become a kitchen table issue. So just as people say, you know, Politics is all local. People vote based on kitchen table issues, which is like paying your bills and all that stuff. Climate has become one of those issues. And I think it's really getting their attention. Yeah. I So I don't know that I would go so far as to say that the Republican Party is actually being influenced by the needs and concerns of their constituents. Um, Donald Trump has certainly made it clear that, you know, the only needs of their constituents are non-climate related. I um I honestly think this is actually more about business. I just think that, you know, whether it's ExxonMobil or the Koch brothers or others, I think many of them are actually starting to face real challenges with their infrastructure, right? I mean, all the Texas refineries and um and other important infrastructure along the Gulf of Mexico just asked for twelve billion dollars in government money for a seawall. Right? You're starting to see just real needs from farmers where they're saying, hey, you know, this because of climate change, like things are changing in our um, our economics and our growth patterns. Right. And I think that people are starting to realize that they can't deny climate change and then at the same time help their constituents with like disaster relief and all the other things that they need to do for adaptation. And so my sense is, is that at some point they just decided like, this is this train is leaving the station. We're going to have to figure out something to do so it doesn't look like we got like sort of um, flat footed on this. And and so I think they're putting something together that, frankly, I think is pretty decent from what I saw. Like, I don't think this is aggressive farming, like or, or, what aggressive did they say, gardening. gardening. <laughs> Although it's funny from Jason saying that, who is an aggressive gardener. I think um, like I, in general, I'd say that. Um, like this is this is all stuff that the federal government can basically uniquely do, right? So if you want to pursue precision farming, for instance, right, the only way to do that is really through the Department of Agriculture and the Farm Bill, right? If you want to produce like pursue carbon capture and storage, you have to do that through the federal government. There's really no way to do that through the states. And frankly, I think the states can handle most of the policy work on renewable energy, right? So and increasingly, the states are doing a lot of work on electric vehicles, including New Jersey's uh, announcement last uh, in the last couple of weeks. And so, I mean, we can certainly go through it. But I mean, I don't know that even the Democrats have a majority of their senators who want to pass a Green New Deal. Yeah, but I don't think you have to have a Green New Deal to show that you have some level of ambition here. I mean... Okay, individually, the components of this climate bill, more spending on technology development, great. More tax breaks, absolutely. We need to you know, figure out how to streamline projects and give the cleaner stuff uh, more of a tax advantage. Absolutely, and that's, a, that's something that Republicans can really get behind. Um, and of course, we, you know, carbon sequestration through planting more trees is one 
a small option, or I mean, it, I think it's, it can offer substantial savings, but it's one option among uh, many other sort of agricultural solutions we need to focus on. But collectively, you cannot take this seriously. This is not serious at all. And you don't have to say, we're going to re-engineer the entire economy and give everyone a job to have a serious climate bill that follows Republican principles. I mean, this is a joke. Come on. I just think this is the first thing out of the gate. I think you're going to see a lot more happening. I mean, on the agriculture side, a lot of these rural communities are just, they're absolutely on the front lines of all these climate crises. It's the droughts and floods are affecting them. All of these climate events are affecting hunting season. And so I think constituents are actually going to go to their members and say, what are, what are you doing on this? Like, what can the government do? And all of the polling shows that Republicans want the government to do something. So I think you will start seeing more solutions. I think they have to kind of tiptoe into it. It's been a really long time. They have not exercised this muscle in quite some time. And it's the atrophied. Have really, <laughs> yeah, the muscles have atrophied. And I think yeah. that the, the campaigns against doing anything have been so strong and so powerful and so full of money that the only thing that's going to change them are the voters. I also think, Stephen, that I, I just think you have to be a little bit less cynical about some of this stuff because because I do think that the, what we've done at the federal level in the past, which is just tax credits, has resulted in you know state-level policy being able to take it most of the way sure. forward. But I think when you think about precision ag, which to me is really regenerative agricultural and soil carbon, and then a trillion trees, which, by the way, was championed by Mark Benioff, who's no Republican. Um, Mark Benioff you know, of Salesforce, right? Of Salesforce, yeah. right? So, so you know, the fact that they've joined in with Mark Benioff on this, like, it, I think most scientists around the world believe that if you aggressively attack soil carbon and you planted trees, that you'd buy yourself something on the order of like 30 years um, because these things don't permanently sequester carbon, but they temporarily sequester carbon for 30 years or so. And so... That's kind of really important right now. I'd separately say that we still have seven to nine billion dollars of tax equity that's actively chasing deal flow. And if we could get that seven to nine billion to actively transition away from solar and wind as we phase out those tax credits towards carbon capture, then Microsoft has a snowball's chance in hell of achieving their goal in. 2030 or 2050, right? I mean, it's not like carbon capture is a mature technology. We've all been investing in R&D. And I think, we, as we all know, R&D doesn't really work. It's really deployment-led innovation that works. So we've got to deploy a lot more of these technologies in the marketplace at $300 a ton, and then see how, you know, cost reduction can occur after that. Yeah, I mean, I can't help but be cynical. These half measures are not enough, and we can't fool ourselves into thinking that this collectively brings us to an ambitious plan. Uh, and and it, you need to put targets in place. You need to establish some kind of emission target, not just saying we're going to throw a bunch of tax breaks at carbon capture. But, you know, just so you know, like Generate Capital is looking at over a billion dollars of carbon capture investments next year. Right. These are actively being done now. Every ethanol plant in the country makes a pure CO2 stream, right? Every cement manufacturing facility in the country can actually do 45Q. Every steel manufacturing facility can do this. This is not some like, like sort of like 
hippie challenge that's on the R&D side, like the crap projects in Mississippi that, you know, try to do IGCC. These are real projects with real engineering companies that are actually looking to deploy next year. And the 45Q credits, if they actually were able to enhance the 45Q credits to provide more money for direct air capture, which is in here, that would really change things, right? I just, for like, look, I get the fact that everyone feels cynical, and I'm not suggesting for a moment that this is World War II footing, which is what we really need to solve climate change. But we're, we're done as far as I'm concerned on renewable energy. We've done what we need to do to get the cost down there. The states can do the rest of it. We're not even started on carbon capture. We have got to start deploying that stuff at scale. Microsoft made it very clear that they were not going to bring their emissions down to zero, that they were going to bring it down most of the way, and they were going to fill the gap with negative emissions. Those technologies desperately need to be scaled up. And whether they're bio-based, like trees and precision farming, or whether they're technology-based, like carbon capture, like we need to scale that up, and only the federal government can do that. Yeah, we need to deploy, but we also need to learn how to tell the stories better. So I think it is important in all those red states that have you know the vast amount of wind projects in them to be able to tell their stories and, and hear from people who are credible resources to them so that Republicans can find their lane and that everybody can be going in the same direction, even if they have different types of solutions. Well, uh, we're coming away from this with more positivity than I imagined. Is that the takeaway that I'm supposed to be feeling? (laughs) I think the fact that Republicans are seriously trying to put something forward, right, I think it's a big deal. And I I honestly think that after the 2009 debacle around the cap and trade bill, like seeing something that really leads to a productive conversation would help all of us who are in the climate wealth business feel better about the direction of our industry and our country. Yeah, Jigger, I really agree with you. So having spoken to both sides of the aisle in the Select Committee on Climate Crisis, you know, the the committee is supposed to produce a report in Q1 of this year, so the end of March, they'll come out with a report. The Republicans will probably have a separate report where they will put out their ideas, but they're also going to align on a number of topics like resilience and innovation and agriculture and infrastructure. And I think that we need to look to those, but then we also need to actually look at the ideas that they put forward because everything should be considered. If one thing can't change our planet right now, maybe collectively it all can. Let's turn to our third topic. We're going to look at plug-in hybrids versus uh, battery electric vehicles. This is a topic that has been top of mind for Jigger for a few weeks now. So We're going to chat about it because there's a report out that uh, gives it a nice news hook. So the American Council on Energy Efficient Economy just released its annual um, rankings of clean vehicles. And hybrids actually accounted for nine of the 12 greenest vehicles. This, of course, depends on where you are driving your hybrid and where you plug in your battery electric vehicle. So pair this with comments made by Honda CEO recently a few weeks ago, he said he, quote, didn't believe there would be a dramatic increase in demand for battery electric vehicles. And he believes that this situation is true globally. Now, there's some dispute over the translation of those comments. Um, He says he didn't necessarily mean that battery electric vehicles would wouldn't compete. Um, But I think clearly he thinks that plug in hybrids are going to be the future for some time. And uh, he said that he doesn't think you know, battery vehicles will be totally mainstream anytime soon. Um, but, you know, wait a second. Didn't 
GM and VW say last summer that they're not even going to make hybrids anymore. So what does this mean for automaker plans and for the way consumers should be evaluating these cars? Um, Jigger, first to the Honda CEO's comments, why did so many people pay attention to the the seeming dismissiveness of electric vehicles, battery electric vehicles? Well, I mean, I think people have been thinking a lot about the Japanese auto companies, right? You're talking about Toyota, you know, who really brought forward the Prius, which is really the introduction of hybrid technology. And then Honda, who's had, you know, the Insight, which was, you know, an ultra miling hybrid car. And you've had, uh, you know, their obsession on hydrogen. And so I think there's been a lot of people going, where are these guys, <laughs> right? We're hearing a lot from the Germans, but where are the Japanese? Um, and they are some of the largest automakers in the United States with a lot of manufacturing facilities in the United States. And so, like, I think it matters what they think. Um, and, you know, frankly, electric vehicles, we sold about 325,000 EVs um, of all types in 2019, which is down 6.8% from 2018. Now, a lot of... Um, Pure electric models came in the fourth quarter of 2019, and so maybe the numbers will be up for 2020. But, you know, like we've kind of stagnated on EV sales except for Teslas. And so I think there's just been a lot of soul searching around, um, you know, whether this phenomenon is really going to generate this sort of hockey stick chart that Bloomberg, you know, New Energy Finance keeps showing. So do you agree with this plug-in hybrid thesis from Takiro Hachigo? Like, do, do you agree that this is an interim step and that we're, we're, we're not quite there for the EV revolution? Well, I think there's a couple of answers to the question. Like, one is personal, right? So I bought a plug-in hybrid vehicle. I have the Volvo XC90 uh, two years ago and, well, three years ago, actually, now. And, you know, I've been tracking my miles pretty judiciously because I'm interested. And about 65% of my miles are electric. And I go to New York with this car. We only have one car in our household. So we've traveled to North Carolina with the car. So we've done long trips. And it's only got a 20-mile range. But for the vast majority of days, like, I go less than 20 miles. And so it's great. And, you know, Tony Posowitz is a close friend of mine who ran the Volt program for General Motors. And I remember him doing all the research back in 2007, 2008, showing that most Americans drive less than 31 miles a day on average. And so... So, in fact, from an engineer's point of view, which is what Toyota and Honda are filled with, um, you end up with the feeling that uh, that you could actually decarbonize our transportation system far faster with plug-in hybrid vehicles because they're less scary to people who are afraid of buying battery electric vehicles. And they also tax the electric utility system a lot less, right? Because you can fill them up with level one and level two charging by just plugging them into your outlet in the garage. So from a practical standpoint, it's the fastest way to decarbonize. Um, from, you know, the battery enthusiast point of view, I see their point of view. It's like you're you're marrying two concepts in one car. So you have all the electric components and all the gasoline components. It's far cleaner just to get rid of all the gasoline components and go pure BEV. And with the cost of batteries coming down, you can see it being cost effective. But I just don't think we're going to sell millions and millions of battery electric vehicles in the near future. I think we can sell millions of millions of 20 mile range plug in hybrids in three years. So I actually uh, would disagree slightly with that because I'm, I think we can leapfrog 
um, because we are going to have a lot more models out there to choose from. And because battery electric vehicles really fit almost every use case, they're lower maintenance, um, better torque, more space, you can get tax credits, you don't have to worry about having an internal combustion engine and all the things that go with the maintenance of that piece of equipment. So I'm hopeful that because all these new models are going to come out, that will really spur it. I know when I was going last year, we also are a one-car family, and we were trying to find an electric car, and the only thing we could find that was not electric is a hybrid Toyota RAV4, which is fine. But as my husband and I were talking about it last night, he was like, we're not running this into the ground. We're going to wait until the model comes out, an EV model that fits our needs, and then we're going to get that. Because that will be completely fine for us. And we think that all of the use cases that we have, it will work for. And one of the things I turn to is Steer, which is a company um, that is doing subscriptions for electric vehicles. So what you can do is subscribe to a level of service for an electric vehicle, and then you can swap it out for a different kind of car if, say, you want to go on a long trip. Um, but it gives people the flexibility of having, you know, a bunch of different vehicles at their disposal to use as they want to. And what they are finding is that this range anxiety that everybody worries about for electric vehicles, that it actually doesn't occur. And that once people start driving fully electric vehicles, the range anxiety just completely disappears and their behavior changes so that they know that they think about it more and they know how they need to drive to make sure that they retain a charge. So let's look at the rankings then for what is actually cleaner to drive. Hybrids won in the top rankings for clean vehicles in this green score, green car scorecard from AC Triple um, Battery vehicles have topped the list before. Now, keep in mind they're assessing everything from life cycle of batteries to how the car is charged and used. Jigger, why are all of a sudden hybrids on the top of the list this year? Well, I look, I think that in general what people are recognizing is that there's a certain level of familiarity that they have with their auto company. And look, the bottom line is, is that if you want to be EV, you buy a Tesla. Like that's how this goes. And the numbers show that, right? Like, you know, like the, the most selling models of BEVs are Teslas. And so if people really are enthusiasts around that, they're really disappointed in the BEV options from their traditional automakers. And so, what they really like their traditional automakers for is plug-in hybrid vehicles because they say it gives me the luxury comforts and the familiar design and all the things that I'm used to in terms of Apple CarPlay or whatever it is that I care about, but it gives me that plug-in option, right? And so so you're starting to see that, that the automakers really are having a hard time competing head-to-head with battery electric vehicles. Um, from Tesla, but they are able to compete on a plug-in hybrid vehicle model because it's a point of differentiation for them. I think that Europe and China are really going to be pulling our automakers along. They are, because of their policies, are driving the cost down to get these vehicles to scale. And I think once we have more models out there for BEVs, the transition will happen faster than we think. I also think policy, of course, plays a big role in this. So there's sort of two sides of policy. Shocking, one. Catherine, shocking. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> per usual, policy is top of mind for me. So there's sort of the two sides, the forcing function, the mandate side, which would be the CAFE standards, the fuel efficiency standards. And, you know, the under the Obama standards, it would be 5% increase in efficiency year to year. 
um, the President Trump was going to completely stop that and freeze it this year, but has uh, changed it so that it'll be 1.5% increase every year uh, until 2029. So at least there's that on that side. And it's not it's not super aggressive, but it's something because the, they found that the automakers were not excited about a freeze since they were starting to develop more BEVs. And then on the other side uh, of the you know van- mandate versus the market pull are all these tax credits. And the tax credits were not lifted um, for to increase the number of vehicles um, at the end of 2019. But states still have credits, states still have rebates. Um, and then the issue then is also let's get that charging station infrastructure out there. And some of the states have been using that VW funding to do that. But that has a ways to go. But I think once we get the charging infrastructure, or once people start buying cars, the charging infrastructure is going to have to be there. And whatever the level is, I assume that for the most part, we're going to end up with, um, you know, level threes where we need them. So CARB is very critical to this, the California Air Resources Board. And um, one of the things, we work with them pretty closely on the low-carbon fuel standard credits for um, their transportation decarbonization policy. And one of the things that's fascinating is, remember, the $7,500 tax credit is available for many, many, many automakers. It's only three that have really hit their cap, uh, GM and Tesla already and Nissan very soon. And, um, and, and you get the full $7,500 for like 30 miles of range. Right. So the calculation for the tax credit doesn't require you to get a BEV. Plug-in hybrids actually get the full $7,500 tax credit if it has 30 miles of range. So, um, so that's one loophole. The second piece though, for CARB and some of these other folks is that the level three charging is not working in California. Like in fact, the Uber and Lyft drivers who have battery electric vehicles are hogging a lot of that capacity. And so you're finding that like, if you have a, pure BEV, you really do need um, a fast charger at home. And if you don't have one at home, you're kind of stuck, right? It's one of the reasons why Tesla bought SolarCity is because they were finding they had huge customer service issues with their customers working with the -the run-of-the-mill electricians. And so my sense is is that if if CARB really wants to decarbonize transportation, which they do under LCFS... um, they they are looking a lot at plug-in hybrid vehicles now, a lot more than they were last year where they were pure BEVs. Mm, those Uber and Lyft drivers always hogging the infrastructure. I go to va- uh-huh. vacuum out my car, and they're all lined up there at the vacuums cleaning out their cars, and I can never get never get an access. That's because I'm <laughs> eating my breakfast quickly in the morning in their back seat. <laughs> Let's go over to free electrons, folks. Catherine, what do you got for us this week? When you are vacuuming out your car, eating a breakfast sandwich, talking to the Uber and Lyft driver next to you and and sharing what's going on in your, your work world, what are you talking about? Yeah, so I know you've said that we've been really good about not bringing two every week, that we've been sticking to one free electron, but I have two Twitter things I just want to point people to. One is I want everybody to follow me at Clean Grid View, where you will find a link to the Elemental Accelerator that is accepting applications, and they're looking for their 100th company to fund, and they're the group out of Hawaii. They do more than just Hawaii, though, and I would point everybody who wants to get some more support uh, for their technology to look at the Elemental Accelerator. The other thing I wanted to point everybody to was BLM, which is the Bureau of Land Management. It's a federal agency under the Department of Interior 
put out a tweet, and they do a lot of tweeting about public lands. And this tweet said, pack your petroleum-based gear for your next hashtag BLM adventure on public lands. Did you know more than 6,000 products, including insect repellent, fishing rods, canoes, and tents, are byproducts of crude oil? Learn how minerals improve everyone's quality of life on hashtag Mineral Monday. And I cannot even tell you the yells and screams and derisive comments that were in response to let's take your petroleum-based gear into our public lands. I mean, come on, you don't post something like that on Twitter and expect uh, a warm reception. (laughs) Was this from all the young Republicans who are pushing their congressmen to lead on climate? These are from federal employees working at the Bureau of Land Management. So what did they do about it? Did they did they do anything about the response? They probably tripled down. Yeah, they didn't do anything. They just kept tweeting about other stuff. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it was like they didn't delete it. It's up. You can look under hashtag this administration BLM Adventure. really doesn't. Oh, my God. This administration doesn't care about public pressure. Yeah, I did not know Mineral Monday existed, but now it does. <laughs> Jigger, what's your free electron when you're driving your plug-in hybrid around wondering if you should invest in a battery electric vehicle what are you going to be thinking about so steelmaker ssab out of uh, stockholm is going to bring uh carbon free steel sorry co2 free uh steel still gonna have carbon in it um on the market by 2026 um, speeding up from an earlier goal of 2035. And the way they're going to do that is to switch the in- firm's entire production to hydrogen. Um, so it's uh, pretty damn amazing. And just to put in perspective how much carbon uh, the steel industry produces, this move by this steel maker will single-handedly cut CO2 by 7% in Finland and 10% in Sweden. Well, I hope they're using green hydrogen to decarbonize that steel. I know you are the world's biggest proponent of green hydrogen. I didn't get a shout out on the interchange, just to be clear, when you guys covered green hydrogen a couple weeks ago. But this will be green hydrogen. Basically, there's all this um, um, spill from their hydro, right? So Finland and Sweden have a lot of hydro, and they don't capture it all because they don't need it all. And so just capturing the spill over the dam... Uh, which is not needed for you know fish health, et cetera, um, can produce all the hydrogen that they need to, to be able to make this conversion. Well, I'm sorry we didn't meet our Jigger shout-out quota. We will do better next month. <laughs> so a couple episodes ago, I put out a call to listeners to, to send me some information on the impact, the environmental impact of meal kits and meal delivery. And sure enough, you heeded the call. Uh, Ethan Hale sent me an email and connected me with some researchers at the Weber Energy Group. Uh, you know, we, we all are friends with and, and know Michael Weber, who, who leads that group. Uh, and Isabella Gee, Dr. Isabella Gee at the Weber Energy Group, has done extensive work on uh, grocery delivery and meal delivery. And so uh, I have a trove of research here that I'm going to be going through, and I hope to share those results with you. And I just wanted to thank uh, listeners, uh, particularly Ethan, for reaching out on that. And so I have another call, uh, since this is working so well, and I just feel like doing a little bit more log rolling again this morning. Um, As listeners might know, I have been working with the folks 
uh, at the Planet Project and the Years Project to develop uh, the Climate 2020 podcast. And uh, they've been doing this for a couple months now, and we're, we're, we're continuing to revise the format and do more on-the-ground reporting as the election really heats up. And so we have been meeting here in New York City, that's why I'm here, to talk about the kinds of stories that we want to pursue as the election season unfolds. And we're going to send producers out to uh, different areas of the country to talk about places where Democrats might be vulnerable and have to think differently about their climate messaging. We're going to talk about frontline communities that are facing the real consequences of the Trump administration's environmental rollbacks. We're going to look at um, different voting blocks and how they're thinking about climate change and organizing around it. So I want to hear your ideas. I put out the call on Twitter. I got a couple messages about it. But if you want to send some ideas about like where you are in the country, if you're seeing splits on the issue, if you're seeing groups being particularly effective about how they're talking about climate or pressuring candidates, if you're seeing candidates who are particularly good on this issue or particularly bad, let us know, because there are a lot of story ideas that we're going to be pursuing, and I really want to feel out from our listeners what they think the most important stories are. So hit me up at postscriptaudio at gmail.com, or just uh, tweet at us or at me or at uh, the energy gang and, and we'd love to hear your ideas that sounds really great i can't wait to listen Stephen. that's going to do it folks thank you so much for being with us we are a co-production of postscript audio and green tech media ingrid lobet is our senior editor Catherine hamilton and jigger shah are my lovely co-hosts i am the executive producer and a contributing editor at green tech media we can be found anywhere you get your podcasts spotify apple google podcasts overcast any of you android users whatever app you're using we're going to find you right here with us next week as always thank you once again This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. We'll talk to you soon.